This is the official HITS training and consulting podcast. We are America's law enforcement canine training resource. We're raising the training bar for police dogs everywhere by discussing the intricate details of the training techniques used by the experts. HITS radio is merging the training world with the real world. You've been there. We've been there too. Welcome to HITS radio. I'm your host, Jeff Meyer. Today I have Cameron Ford again with us today. Uh, earlier this year, Cameron and I did uh, about three-part uh, episodes here on our podcast talking about using marker training for detection dogs. Got a lot of good feedback from that, and that's uh, something that I learned from Cameron and uh, have been actively out uh, singing the, the praises to that uh, type of training. And Cameron's got some other good stuff going on right now. He's getting very heavily involved with some of the science of detection dogs, and specifically he's doing a lot of work with uh, cognition testing of detection dogs. So I brought him on here. Uh, we'll probably end up being a two-part episode again. because I wanted uh, Cameron to share with uh, all of our listeners kind of what this cognition testing is, because I think a lot of people have maybe seen some stuff on Facebook on it or, or seen little bits or maybe even saw you know part of a class or something, but uh, maybe don't really understand where all it's going and, and what it can do for you as a detection dog handler and probably even as a patrol dog handler. I'm sure there's some, some tests that are relative to both. So uh, with that, uh, how are you doing today, Cameron? I'm doing great, and thank you for having me on. I'll be happy to talk about uh, what we've got going on today in regards to cognition. Yeah, I know you got a lot going on, so I appreciate you jumping on here on the afternoon, spend a little bit of time with me. So let's uh, let's just jump right into it. Uh, let's what's cognition? What, are, what what are we talking about here when we're talking about the the latest stuff that's coming out, and and okay. kind of maybe even explain how you got into this. Okay, yeah, so exactly that, you know. I got into it almost just because initially I was attached uh, as a contract trainer for Naval Special Warfare. Uh, so the SEAL team is out on the West Coast. And during my time out there, you know, selecting dogs to do special operations is just like selecting a person doing selection or doing special operations, meaning that you have to have the best of the best, or you really need those specific type traits both in a person and in a dog to operate in an environment like that. So, and because of that, um, you know, success rate was always at a lower percentage and you know, and you want and expect that because only the best of the best can really make it through, um, you know, an arduous training process with all those kind of things. But I wondered, is there, was there anything that we could do better? Could we make changes or look at things differently than we had always done? Because a lot of what we had, used for selecting dogs was traditional in the sense that, you know, it was the same things I did as a cop. A lot of the things I looked for with a caveat being the environmental stressors for special operations can far exceed the uh, aspects of uh, working with uh, special operations. So law enforcement has its levels of distractors and environmental stuff, but in special operations, those environmentals can kind of go by 10. So with that said, you know, was there anything better that we could do? And lo and behold, one day I'm sitting at home like this on a Saturday and I'm seeing on Nat Geo Wild, uh, a show called uh, Is Your Dog a Genius? And on there was Dr. Brian Hare from Duke University doing these different brain games with dogs. And I watched this and I said to myself, wow, that's really actually relative to detection dog world because he was showing a lot of things where handlers had influence over their dogs and it was very, very minor things that, you know, people like us and the profession can look at and go, yep, I, I seen that before I go through that. 
Yeah. So anyway, I reached out to him, shot him an email, and lucky enough, he wrote back pretty quickly, and he began telling me how he's already had worked with the military and other uh, entities before using cognition tests to help them uh, with canine selection. So fast forward, uh, some, some hoops got jumped through, and I was able to go to Duke University, learn the cognition tests, and then I took what I learned and then applied it to working dogs. So dual purpose dogs, but specifically what I was doing at that time with maybe seal work was obviously every dog that we worked with were dual purpose dogs. So the tests, you know, that I kind of even refined from what he showed me were things that helped us understand two specific things. One is memory and two is how dogs make an inference or how dogs problem solve. and looking at those things weren't things that we really looked at at all when we did canine selection. We always do things like motivation, drive testing, environmental, um, all those kind of things. But we never delved into the mind of the dog and said, okay, how you do, how do you problem solve something or how well can you remember something? And inadvertently, of course, many of the things I talk about, we would see, but we would see down the line through training. So by doing or adding these tests, which took, you know, on average about 30 to 45 minutes to get done, and I would do these tests after I'd already done all my traditional testing and narrowed it down to, let's say, my top three or top two dogs that I wanted to, to go further with. Those right. dogs would then go through the cognitive tests, and that what the information gained from that actually did a couple of things. One what we saw data wise was our percentage of dogs that made it from selection to deployment went up 34%. My training time decreased by exactly 30%. And what was learned because of that was we were far more efficient about how we were training because now doing those tests, I knew the dog in front of me better than I did just by doing the normal things I had done in the past, which is, okay, hey, I like this dog. Let's go ahead and begin training. But a dog who I tested that I saw was very strong in memory enlightened me in the sense that, okay, in training, I need to make adjustments to what I do quicker. If a dog is strong in memory, which means a lot of times they'll operate off of the memory of a task versus, let's say, uh-huh. using their nose to, to do detection or yeah. – using their nose to hunt for a person hiding someplace. They're going to go to a last spot they found something, or they're going to go to something that looks like the last place they found something, Yeah, and then figure out from there that it's not there and move around. Versus because I knew a dog was good in memory, I would make adjustments quicker, which then allowed learning to happen faster, which meant reinforcement happened faster, which means the dog got a bite or a dog got its reward detection faster because it started default to nose before memory. And that was a big, big change. Sure. The dogs that could problem solve, I had to really be aware as a trainer that they are taking in lots of other bits of information in that environment besides just using their nose to find the odor. They are looking at the handler for information. They're looking at the environment for information. They are looking at certain – so if you use a box quite often, they will then get – really good and focused and give you great behaviors at a box because they realize, okay, the box is the inference that I need to figure this out. Or handler position, the way the handler is standing or walking behind me or these typical things that, of course, we all know we call it cueing and this, that, and the other. But 
if, if you saw when you do the test and you see these things where the dog can make an inference quite well, you know you got to make constant changes. So that way, again, just like memory, instead of the dog trying to use, let's say, you to problem solve, they now have to use their nose to problem solve. Or the other aspect is sometimes I can advance training or create, let's say, in detection work, what I call like a, a scent puzzle. Something that the dog has to figure out and there's no way a yeah. human can help them. And by doing that, the dog can operate. This is a dog who's going to operate very well when there's no handler present. So let's say a police dog that has to go inside a building and search or a bomb dog that has to work a distance away from the handler. This kind of dog yeah. will excel because they are happy to problem solve or work out odor by themselves through whatever means are necessary in that environment to be successful. Whereas the dog who's strong yeah. in memory may try to use something from memory to solve it versus trying things. So sure. one of the pitfalls I dealt so just with. Just to be clear on this, let, yeah, me, let me interrupt real quick. Just to be clear, what we're talking about is basically when you, you went and you did your usual selection test, mm-hmm. nothing different there. So um, if people are listening to this, we're not saying change what you're doing. We're just saying nope. add something on. So you did your usual selection test, figured out which dogs you liked, which ones were the, the, the best hunting dogs and all the mm-hmm. environmental stuff. Everything, and then in thirty or forty minutes, you added on a few extra tests that we're going to discuss probably in episode two. Mm-hmm. That um, with that thirty or forty minutes, cut down hours and hours of your training time based on what what you're describing. Absolutely, and and that and, and you're bringing up a key factor because it gets asked to me a lot when they first read what I'm talking about or hear me talk about it in a lecture or what have you. Is still do. You know, you can do whatever test that you normally do that you have found successful for you to pick a dog. But once you do, adding these tests will help you know that dog in front of you. I also add that anybody who has a dog who hasn't done these cognitive tests, do them. All it's going to do is give you more information about that dog in front of you. Some of it's going to confirm what you already know. Many cases, it confirms a lot of things that we kind of had a gut feeling about about the dog. But you sure. didn't have any way to prove it. But this way now it kind of shows you sure. it doesn't, you, you know. And in some cases you realize the dog you've been sleeping with in your room, you have no idea who he is. So it's a, <laughs> it's a way to uh, help you uh, be more efficient in how you train and how you communicate just by understanding how that dog's mind works. And like I said, it's nothing earth shattering, but man, just having those bits of information regarding memory and inference is is important to have so that way you're more efficient as a trainer you're not spinning your wheels you're not trying something or you'll realize oh wait that didn't work let me just make one adjustment this way so let's not hide something near the water heater because now every room he goes into that has a water heater he goes to that let me let's go ahead and move it to this location and then the dog will go okay and and i'll go into i'll explain memory a little bit just so people can have a so in in memory in dogs, we look at two things, working memory and set memory. And many of us have seen examples of both. Uh, set memory, obviously, is things that they have smelled besides the target odor or the person they're looking for. They take in the odor of the entire space and they can remember those other aspects that exist even when the target material or odor is gone. They still go, okay, yep, there's something. This is all similar, but it's missing yeah. something. So they'll show you a lot of similar behaviors, but it's not exactly the same as when target odor is present. Or working memory, they're going off of, they remember the tasks. So they come into the room, they know to go to the doorway, sniff the bottom of the door, they kind of do that. 
that working memory then has, there's many splits from that, but the two that I work with is called implicit memory and episodic memory. Implicit memory is just this. It's things that you do naturally every day that you don't even think about. So if I put a bicycle in front of you, you can hop on a bicycle and ride. You remember how to do it. It doesn't require you know, any you know, special sure. skill. Once you learned it, you know it. Episodic memory is things that you, know, you remember what you had for lunch today or you remember what you had for breakfast. It, it's re- the easy way that I remember it is the word episodic. Sounds like episode. I remember what occurred this morning. So yeah. when we're working with dogs, searching is like an implicit memory. Dogs really know how to, you know, searching is not a hard task for them to do. They've already been bred and selected and so forth. They kind of yeah. come with it. And after searching cars a couple of times, later on, you could introduce a car two years later and a lot of dogs will search it like they did two years before when you first introduced it to them. So that's that side of the equation. Episodic is really important because it helps us understand training. So a dog who's using you know, the reference material of where a hide was placed in a room that they just searched you know, 10 minutes before is going to go to the next room. If it looks just like the previous room, we'll go to a similar location. So if you hit it, let's yeah. say you're working at a school and you put it near a projector, obviously we know it's probable that some dogs, each room they go to after that, they're going to sniff that projector area really, really well. And, and in some cases may even give that indication because, hey, they just had success with something just yeah. like it a minute ago. So uh, when I'm training a dog, a, those that have seen or follow me on social media see that I constantly, even in that beginning stage of odor association, I change the containers often because I don't need a dog who's great at searching boxes. I want a dog who's great at searching everything. And I want a dog who understands sure. the only constant that exists is odor. So let's just say Monday I'm doing boxes, Tuesday or Wednesday. I'm probably going to do like the the elbow pipes that you see for odor work, or maybe I'll do a wall with the the holes on it. Or now, you know, I have these uh, scent jar lineups that I can change and it's a glass jar or it's paint cans or it's our brick wall with the paint cans on it. Um, I'm constantly changing the context in which the dog is searching for odor, but the only constant thing as the dog learns is odor. So it doesn't matter how it's contained in, it matters what they're looking for. But current methodology most often goes with a week or two weeks or whatever the amount of time is of doing boxes or a scent wall or what have you, and you just do that over and over again. What we see because of episodic memory, they're using memory first more so than nose. They will use their nose, and I'm not saying they don't. I'm just saying they're going to work yeah. off memory. And then the minute you take them away from that environment, let's say you leave boxes and you go or leave the wall and you go to someplace new, all of a sudden you kind of see the cracks that exist where the dog doesn't quite totally get the picture. But so therefore they need your help or you jump in to help them solve it when you change it from, let's say, boxes to a room or boxes to a car or what, whatever your change is, you will see the dog go, eh, I'm not so sure. Where's my box at? I, I love searching boxes. Yeah. And uh, when you make yeah. that change, you see, like I said, you see the cracks that exist. As opposed to making those changes much earlier on. So like I said, a couple days of, of odor concealed in this kind of container and another couple days in this kind of container. The protocol is the same, whether it be you know pipes or boxes 
or uh, metal drawers or a wall. The, the, the basics of that are the same no matter what that container is. But the important yeah, part yeah. is that the container changed. Mm -hmm. Therefore, the dog isn't using that as much anymore. Yeah. You're basing some of this, obviously, when you've done this cognition test on the dog, you know that some dogs, I got to be super careful with these little Correct. details. And some other dogs, maybe isn't going to be quite, I mean, obviously, I know you're going to train that way pretty much all the time. But mm -hmm. um, I imagine there's some red flags that you see probably based on some of these tests. Absolutely. So a, so a dog that I see when I'm doing the memory test, let's say, and the dog does really, really well in memory tests, I already know those dogs will for sure get changes to the context in which odor is hidden in very quickly. Because if I don't make the change to how the odor is hidden, so I'll just use boxes again, it's because it's a common yeah. thing. If I ran a dog on boxes for a week, then all I've done is reinforce that boxes are important and boxes yeah. happen to have odor in it versus going yeah, yeah. odor is important and it just odor happens to be in a box today. It might be yeah. someplace else tomorrow. Yeah. But the one thing you need to use is your nose to figure out where that odor or where that odor is hidden at, yeah. not the containment that it's in. This is probably a good time to kind of jump in here. And um, how many how many tests do you do? And yep. can you just kind of rattle off the names of them or something and then yeah. we'll get deeper into them? But yep, absolutely. Kind of explain it. So when I go to the point where now I'm going to, I'm going to do the brain games, of the dogs, the first test I do, and this is, I'm, this is actually a newer modification. So many that have heard me recently, I talk about the first test as we call pointing cue test, where basically uh, the, what I used to do was basically show the dog, Hey, I have your toy or I have your piece of food. And I, and I have a barrier as like a piece of cardboard in my hand. The cardboard is about, you know, 15 inches wide by about 12 inches tall. It's just a divider for me to say, show the dog the item and then place yeah. it behind the, the cardboard. And then I walk backwards to on the ground, there'll be two, let's say uh, something the size of like a flower pot, but upside down, you know, a small little flower pot where I can fit yeah. a ball underneath it or a piece of food or whatever. So I walk over to my right and I put the divider thing in front. So the dog cannot see that I'm putting the item underneath that one. So if it's the right side, I'll put the toy or food underneath the right side. I go over to the left and I act like I'm putting it there. And then I go back to the middle between the two items and then I'll point to the one that has the item in it. And then can the dog just basically follow my gesture and understand when I point this way, this pointing leads to where, uh, where you go. And reason yeah. for that is there's no other animal on the planet that can understand human communication and intention better than a dog. So there's no chimpanzee, there's no bonobos, there's no dolphins, there's no nothing can understand human communication and intention better than dogs. So in this test, done this way, where I pointed to where it is, dogs would then, you know, follow that point. And I can see a dog that would, and a lot of dogs do well on this one. It's an easy one. By nature and their relationships with us, dogs naturally follow where we point. They actually even naturally go to where we gaze or where we stare at stare at. And because we know this. The recent change I made is now, instead of having that cardboard divider, I basically show the dog the item that they want. I walk back. I either left or right, whatever the form, the testing form says I should go to, because it's random. You want to keep random in this thing. It's not, you don't want to create patterns. Uh -huh. So I'll put the item now in plain view. Okay, here, I'm putting it on the right side, dog, and I cover it up with the, with the little uh, the flower pot, or like I said, sometimes it's like a, a kid's sand pail, the small little pails. 
I could use that yeah. to cover it up. And then I go back to the left side to act like I'm doing something there. And I come back to center. And I this time I point to the wrong one. Will they use their memory and understanding that what they want is opposite of where I'm pointing? And the reason why yeah. I made this change is because I found it more valuable for dogs that would basically disobey what I'm telling them to go to, especially when they know the answer. They saw me put their sure. item right there to the right side, but yet I'm pointing to the left. And that would they be willing to go against where I'm pointing to go to where they know uh, what they need or what they want is over here. And that's important because obviously in detection and in any type of police activity or military activity, I don't know the answer, which is why I have the dog with yeah. me. And if I'm inadvertently pointing to the opposite direction or to a non-productive area, yet the dog can smell or knows, you know, through another means hearing or what have you, that something that they're looking for is the opposite direction. They are at least willing to disregard my, my commutative intention and follow what their, their eyes, ears, nose, or yeah. uh, other senses are telling them to go to. I found that more valuable because, you know, I know that's needed later on down the line. Gestural communication yeah. is important and, and I, and I there's still value in it, but taking it to that next level, having that dog who's willing to do where they or go to where they know the answer is yeah. versus following what I tell them to do ends up being a, uh, more rounded dog. So that's the first test. Pointing cue test is that first. Okay. Time. Now how many times, how many times do you do that same test? So that's six reps. So I mean, with, again, there's a form. Six reps that, for that dog. Yeah. Uh -huh. So in that form will tell you. So you have somebody basically telling you it's the right side, left side, right side, left side. And, and it sometimes it's left, left, or it's right, right. You know, again, it's all random. And, so you don't know. And on the random part, is there ever a time where you are telling the dog you are pointing at the correct one or you always do that? That would be a separate. So now, you know, there's there's two ways. I've Like I said, I've been doing it where I've been pointing to the correct one. But in that sequence you're talking about, no, you stay to the same thing. You always, you, if you're going to do the test where you okay. point to the non-target side, then you stay doing yeah. that for six reps. If you're doing okay. pointing cue and you want, and you're going to point to where it's at, then you do, you point to where it's at for six times. You okay. don't mix it up in so one for trial. Six, all right. So for these six reps, yep. is um, is there a percentage or a number of times that you're hoping like a really good dog, obviously six mm -hmm. times will just go where he sees it. Sure. It, sure. 50% of the time average, or is there any, um, do you have it, any, uh, it truly varies, you know, it truly varies because it, it kind of comes down to the dogs are individuals like us. So you have some dogs, no matter what the breed is, the, the dogs can understand and make inferences really well. So I could have a poodle that does outstanding on either one of those games. And I could have a German shepherd or a Malinois, you know, completely, you know, suck at it. And, yeah. Yeah. and it doesn't make the dog suck. That's just one of the tests. So I always tell everybody it's the totality. When you get done and you look at all the tests together, you see sure. where that dog's at. So, and what will be crazy is yeah. you'll see them do crappy in one test. And you're like, really, this is pretty easy. And then all of a sudden there's a test that's like 10 times harder and they kill it. And you're like, okay, how does this even make sense? Uh -huh. <laughs> something that's way easier so, you're struggling with and something harder you do great. Yeah. So in a traditional selection test, um, you know, like if it's a patrol dog test, uh, if, if I do a, a stakeout test first, mm -hmm. if that dog doesn't pass that test, I'm done with him. 
Yeah. But in this one, you're just going to run through all the tests and then take the totality of everything. So if a dog bombed right. test one here, that doesn't really yeah. mean anything. You're nope. It doesn't mean anything at all. Again, okay. it just, it's just a, uh, it's at your just first glimpse. Yeah. It, and yeah. as you do it, you'll start seeing the lines split in the dog. You'll start seeing the ones that are, you can see work really well off memory. And then there's the other ones that you see working well off making an inference. So the next test that I do is more of an inference test. So it's basically set up the exact same way as that pointing cue test, except for this time after I've, you know, and I'm still going to, on this test, I do block where so the dog cannot see which side I put the item underneath. So that way, when I go to the next part of this, instead of pointing, now I'm going to place an object on top of the correct side. So let's say it's underneath the bucket on my left side. I go forward, I show this dog, you know, a lot of times it's just, it could be a roll of duct tape, duct tape. I'll walk forward and say, yeah. look, and I show the dog duct tape and I'll walk over to my right side and I stand there. I walk all the way over to my left side, then I'll place the duct tape on top of that bucket. I go back down to the middle and I'll go, okay. And the dog is let go by the handler. And, and to set this up, the dog is about 12 feet from the person administering the test and about 12 feet away from those buckets. So that way you're not on top okay. of it. You're set back a distance. And like me, you talked yeah. about, I'll put a link to these videos of these tests in the show notes or for you to put in your show yeah. notes. So that way they can go to YouTube and watch them. Um, but in that case, so in this test, the only difference is there's an object on top of the bucket that contains the item they want, food or toy. And can they make that inference that, well, one bucket has nothing on top of it. This bucket has something on top of it. And will they choose the bucket that has something on top of it? Because it's different. And uh -huh. dogs that start figuring that out, real again, are ones that, that clearly show they can make an inference. They know this is different than that. And because this is different, I'm going to try it yeah. out and see if it's successful. And as simple as that test is, the same thing, you do it six times and you're changing randomly what side it's on. Does the dog do it? And then you're looking again overall, the overall percentage, are they right only twice? Because every time you let them go, no matter what, they always go to the right side or... Because there, there are dogs that no matter what I do, yeah. I call them the, the broken clock dogs because no matter what, the six reps yeah. are right at least twice because they're in that system. <laughs> yeah. It will be at least two times on one side and they will always go to yeah. that, that side. They're just, they just have a side preference. They, they're not following any information. They just, when you say, yeah. okay, they're, gonna, they're always going to go to their, their left side. And what I want people to understand because this is a common question, they're like, oh, they're, are they using their nose? No, you're just... All the dog has to do is go the direction and get within, let's say, a foot or less of that side or that item. So that bucket that's on my right side, as long as it gets within a foot or less, it's basically its nose kind of crosses the plane, then that's a choice. You're not waiting for them to knock it over. You're not waiting okay. for them to sniff around it. You're not waiting. All they're, all they're doing is making a choice. You're, you're watching his body language that he understands. It. Correct. Yeah, okay. And again, a lot of times, as soon as you say, okay, they take off in the direction that they intended to go from the beginning. So the, yeah. you know, and, and again, people are like, well, could they smell it? Well, okay. But I'm also putting the, the item on both sides constantly. So there is no real gain of odor in this equation. Yeah. And the decision is made within generally two to three seconds, if that, because as soon as you say, okay, dogs take off right away and go. They're do moving. This. Yeah. Yep. So, and all you're doing is you're calling out choice for the dog. As soon as the dog goes over it, then you can open the, you can knock the bucket over for them. You can give it whatever you want to do because you've, they've already made the choice. So you, you, you're clear. You yeah. know, and again, you know, giving it justice by seeing it, you'll have a better understanding it verbally explaining it. You're getting an idea of what we're doing. So. 
Yeah. One and test like, is, like I said, I'll put the stuff in the show. Yeah. I'll put the, the videos in the show notes. So, um, so we've talked about the first two tests. How many tests yep. are there total? So I go through basically about six, six tests. Um, and within that, the caveat being is memory test is technically four tests. They're just, they're very similar, but different. So example, it's 20 seconds and 40 seconds cycle as far as timeline between when the dog yeah. is allowed to go forward to make a choice. You do it again, 20 seconds or 40 seconds. But during that 20 seconds or 40 seconds, your whole job is to distract the dog while it's waiting and then letting it go make a decision. Yeah. Uh, what I'm getting at is on your score sheets, you basically have six, six different Yeah, you'll tests. see, you'll see, I'll call it out pointing cue, marker cue. Uh, the one I don't do as often anymore is called unsolvable because I do that during selection test anyway. Basically, you take the item that dog wants, toy or food. Most cases, obviously, in, in working dogs, we have a toy. I put it in a container yeah. the dog cannot get out. And how long do they stay actively going for it within a minute Just, period of time? So I do a yeah, version of that during common. general selection. Yeah. So I don't really have to do that one, but you can, if you want to, okay. it's on the sheet. So that's three right there. Okay. Then there's causality. That's four, which is a, another test we'll talk about. And then the memory yeah. test five, which is broken into its two different segments, distraction without distraction. So technically it's five, but you have six in that sense because it's broken into two categories. Okay. And that's what I was kind of getting at is we've got 30 minutes here. So, um, that's kind of about where we like to take a break. So Perfect. I think if uh, if if this works good, we're going to do part two coming up real soon. So hopefully, if you guys are interested in this, you've you've got your uh, you know interest uh, kind of cued here. In the show notes here, I'm going to put the links because Cameron's got some good YouTube videos that'll show you what exactly he's talking about. So it's one thing to hear it, but then you can get on YouTube and just kind of watch it and play with it. Yeah. So in the show notes here, I'm going to put information about uh, hits canine uh, of course and cameron will be in phoenix in 2020 again mm -hmm. so we'll, he'll be teaching and we'll actually class, do this class yeah we'll it. do this class now andy and i talked yeah. about it i will actually do a whole lecture on this exact uh canine yeah. cognition you'll be able to be able to come and watch this class live and uh you know by then if i have more videos in the class and everything so we'll we'll put that with the show notes in there and then in a very uh near uh episode We'll do part two where we're going to talk about the rest of these tests. And in between then, if uh, you've got questions, uh, just email them to me and I'll pass them on to camera. We'll talk about them on the, the uh, next part two show. And I'll add one more thing about the, the things that we take from this test is two things that you'll see as you do the test. One is mental flexibility. Is the dog flexible enough to know that despite receiving, you know, finding their, their toy or food at this one location, are they flexible enough to try something different than before? Or are they just so motivated that every single time they have to keep doing the same thing over again? Because subjectively, when we go out and look at a dog testing wise, we'll see a dog who's super motivated for the toy and we think it looks great. And a lot of times it does. But if I reward the dog once or twice in the same spot and I've now changed it, the dog who keeps going to the same spot it used to be, even though they're using memory, they're, they're showing they're not mentally flexible enough to try something different, at least yeah. not quickly. And then the other thing is that you see is dogs who overstimulate themselves. So as you show them the item, let's say, and you put it behind the, the little cardboard barrier and you're setting up, they're constantly barking, row, 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 you know, going crazy the entire time. Yeah. What you realize is that a dog who puts themselves in such a high state of arousal or mental stimulation that those dogs also have a problem learning and problem solving because they can't get out of their own way. They get themselves so worked up that they stop thinking and they're just going off of emotion in a sense. They're just, oh, I got to do it. Yeah. And again, they're if by seeing that, 
you make adjustments in your training or you may realize, hey, this dog looked good on those other typical tests that we do, but I can see he gets himself so worked up, it's going to make my life so difficult to train this dog because any little thing I do is going to send it into the ozone layer. And then that's not going to be productive yeah. for training as I make tasks more difficult or let's say it's bite work and all the dog can do is just get themselves so worked up. They won't even want to hear the word or understand what letting go or out is. So yeah, that's, yeah. that's, that's the other part you'll see doing these tests that we'll again hit on, on part two. Outstanding. I'm looking forward to that. So again, check out all the show notes. We got, we'll have a lot of information on there about this. And uh, again, camera will be in Phoenix this year. Or next year, it's 2020 is going to be in Phoenix. So the link will be in the show notes and all the information will be on there. And then uh, just pay attention to the, the upcoming episodes and we'll have Cameron on here real soon for part two and kind of finish up this uh, dialogue. So Cameron, I appreciate you jumping on and uh, yeah. uh, getting going on this and we'll finish it up real soon. My pleasure. And it's nice going to Phoenix this year. I can actually drive from Vegas to, <laughs> to Phoenix and, there you go. and, nice and, and do some more stuff. Yeah. And, and those that want to learn these tests, and again, after the part two, you get to hear more about it. One of the classes that I do is I'll go to, uh, whether it be a search and rescue organization, police department, uh, or even civilians, and I'll spend three days and I show you guys how to do these tests. We do them with all the dogs that you have or teach your staff members or uh, your trainers how to do this just so that way you then have this tool to help you either sure. A, in training or B, in selecting your future dogs going down the road. Yeah, it'd be good to spend a few days doing this, I'm sure, because I, I try to wrap your head around all this information. Oh, yeah. You can't really do it over over an article or a podcast or something. Yep, so yep. That's a, it'd be a great resource. Well, thanks, Cameron. Perfect. We will uh, touch base with you real soon. We'll do part two very soon. Thank you. Sounds great. Thanks. If you're looking to make an investment in your canine career, come the HITS 2020. There's no substitute for the real thing. Whether you're a new handler who's looking to learn more about dog training or an experienced trainer who's looking for new training ideas and techniques, come the HITS 2020 where the investment is well worth the return. HITS 2020 will have more classes and more vendors who give away more free raffle gifts and free cash than ever before. HITS is the world's largest canine seminar and is open to police officers and military members. Our experience makes the difference. You've been there, and we've been there too.